you know, it, it, that whole attitude that this is just who I am. You know, again, a lot of times people with anxiety disorders understand that that's your best quality. It's the thing about mm-hmm. you that your kids, your you know, your mate, your friends like because you're very empathetic. You tune in well to people. You're a great listener. Uh, it's just you get overloaded easily, you know, and that's all it is. Welcome to The Dream Season, a podcast for entrepreneurs, writers, and creatives of all kinds looking to finally find some balance in your life so you can get back to enjoying the things you love and even the things you don't love but have to do anyway. I'm your host, Holly Ostara, and together we're going to bring delight, inspiration, and sustainability to your creative flow, one season at a time. So let's make this the season of your dreams. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we have Renaud Purifoy. And Renaud was in a private practice for 20 years as a marriage and family therapist, specializing in anxiety disorders before becoming a teacher at the local college. And he's written four books. The most recent that has just been released is Why You Feel the Way You Do. So welcome, Renaud. Well, thank you. It's a joy to be here. I'm really excited to have you because I am a lifelong sufferer of anxiety. I think we probably all have a little bit lately these days. Well, it's a normal part of life, you know, anxiety. And especially when you have something that you're going through, that's just even out of the ordinary, sometimes that anxiety can build up and, and sometimes you don't know, you don't have the tools to figure out how to get back to your baseline. Well, sure. The, everybody I worked with, I worked mainly with panic disorder was the primary thing I saw. I always saw a lot of things related to it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things uh, that they had to understand is that their body was different from the average body. You know, when you look at uh, the heights of people, there's tall people, short people, and average people, right? So if you look at the reactivity of your body, uh, it varies too. You know, some people, you got to slap them upside the head to get them to notice something. And people with anxiety-related problems as a group tend to have a very reactive body. So it's kind of like a house where the wiring's not quite up to code, you know, plug too many things in and those circuit breakers trip. In <laughs> fact, uh, when I talk to people about when they would have their first panic disorder, they would say things like, well, you know, life was pretty good. I was going to school full time, taking care of my dad who was sick. And oh, yeah, my fiance decided I didn't want to get married. You know, I don't understand, you know, where this came from. And it's like, wait a minute, back up the truck. I, th- I think I figured it out. Usually it was a stress reaction, but they didn't understand that it was a stress reaction. And instead, you know, they had this this anxiety attack. And so they thought, oh my gosh, something's going wrong with me. So then they start watching their body, doing what they call internalization. And then a lot of negative anticipation, a lot of what if thinking, what if it's this, what if it's that. And so they start self-generating anxiety. So that was uh, the panic disorder group. Um, And the nice thing working with them is they get back to living normal lives again. In fact, I just got a call the other day from a gal that I worked with about 30 years ago and talking about how just all the things that she was doing now. She was recording some commercials for TV and this and that. So you can get back to the point where you, where anxiety becomes just a normal part of life and you don't overreact to it. And I think that's the key thing when you work with anxiety related problems. One of the big things that's associated if you're not having panic attacks, it's just kind of generalized anxiety is the what if thinking, they call it negative anticipation. What if this, what if that, what if I don't 
do well in my interview? What if I flunk the test? Oh, what if this goes on? What if that goes on? And two key things with that. Uh, one is that people tend to do a lot of emotional reasoning. And emotional reasoning is where you use your emotions to decide whether something is true or not, as opposed to using reason. And like, so people with panic disorder, a lot of their fears or one of their big fears is passing out because they tend to hyperventilate. And so I would say, so when you go to the store, what are the chances that you might pass out? And they would say something like, oh, maybe 50, 60% chance that I might pass out. And so then I would say, so how many times have you actually passed out in life? Well, I've never passed out. So based on reality, the odds were low based on their emotional reasoning, the odds were high. And then the second thing they tended to do was uh, catastrophize the consequences of passing out. You know, oh my gosh, so on a scale of one to 10, how bad would passing out at the store be? Oh, probably a 12 or 15, I don't know. You know, worst thing I can think of is passing out in the store. So then I say, well, okay, on our scale of one to 10, let's make 10 uh, having a wasting disease, having your child killed, getting your arm cut off. Um, you know, if that if, if that's a tid, how bad is passing out of the store? You know, given that there'll be no harm to you other than embarrassment, right? And within a few minutes, your CO2 you know levels are going to rebalance and you'll be okay again. So now the scale, it comes way down, right? So catastrophizing, overestimating the odds of how bad it's going to be and how likely it's going to be are the two things they got to get over. People who deal with anxiety well and with what if things well, they tend to just automatically kind of make a more realistic estimate of the likelihood and the consequences. And then they do two other things, which is, well, what can I do to prevent it? And what could I do if it were to happen? And if you're busy, oh my gosh, it's going to happen. It's going to be the worst thing in the world. You never get there, right? So, and that's a lot of what I would do with people is we would take their fears and we would work it through. What are the odds? How bad would it actually be? What are some specific things you can do to prevent it? So like with hyperventilation, you can do some breathing techniques and things like that. And then if you were to pass out, well, what could you do? Well, I could sit down so I wouldn't hurt myself. And then I could have something to say when I start feeling better. And so we would rehearse something simple. And then with that, they could go out and start practicing. And whenever that, that, that thought came up, they would hit it with their little coping self-statement that they kind of compressed all that stuff down into. Well, I'm probably not going to pass out. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And, you know, I just tell people I'm not feeling too good and go home. Mm -hmm. And armed with that, they could start practicing that situation and at least address that one specific fear. And that's how you deal with stuff uh, as far as the what ifs. And people who grew up in families where that's sort of a natural way that you deal with life, then, you know, they just normally do that. And if you had a parent who catastrophized or did a lot of negative anticipation, then you tend to do a lot of that too. So a lot of times it comes from a parent who, who did that sort of thing, although it doesn't have to. Hmm. Well, I think you basically just described me as a person <laughs> with all of this. What do you recommend for people who who are worried about things that are all 10 on the scale. Well, this gets into, in the new book, um, Why You Feel the Way You Do. At the end of it, I talk about the three things that make people happy. Mm -hmm. And of course, the big one is relationship, you know, having deep, meaningful relationship. The second one is purpose. But then the third one, which is a little bit more squishy to kind of get your hands around, but that's meaning. How do I answer those existential questions in life, you know, why am I here? Is there life after death? Is there purpose? Is there a higher being? Is there not? 
people who deal with anxiety, things like COVID and stuff, well, uh, they tend to have a belief system, a an existential, if you will, or spiritual, you can use either word, belief system that helps them cope with adversity and put it in a context that makes sense to them. And one of the things that is very weak in our culture today is people don't have a very good sense of meaning when you ask them those types of questions. Basically, I'm I'm here to get things, I die, and it's all over. You know, that's kind mm-hmm. of our general approach to life in, in America today. And it's unfortunate because you look at other countries where they have a lot worse things going on, people deal with it a lot better because again, they have either religious or philosophical or some other type of a sense of meaning that helps them cope with adversity well. And so a lot of times that's the other thing to take a look at is, you know, how do you answer those questions? I know one of the things um, I I used to like to point out to people is, in fact, I I mentioned it briefly at the end of the book, is some of the near-death research that's gone on. In 1970s, uh, Moody wrote his uh, classic book, Life After Life, where Mm -hmm. he started talking about his experiences with cardiac and other patients who had near-death experiences. And that's become a whole research area. In fact, there's recently just a major research and they came out saying, well, you know, we have absolutely no physical scientific explanation for what's going on. We know something's going on. People report things that we do third-party confirmation on, but the brain is dead. There's absolutely no activity. There's absolutely no way in terms of science explaining this stuff. And that's as far as it goes. That's as far as I go. Because then what do you do with that, right? If there is something beyond the physical, then I feel it's important to figure out some way to incorporate that into your belief system, because then it helps you again deal with all the crazy stuff going on around the world. Is that your recommendation for people looking for meaning is that we we seek some external force if we don't already have one? I leave that up to people. You know, if there is something besides, you know, the physical, uh, you know, how, how, how do you deal with it? I mean, I have what I, I have my own personal belief systems. I don't get into that because again, that's my personal belief systems, but it does help you to understand that there's more to life than just getting things and enjoying them. I mean, I'm into service. Yeah. I'm into, you know, trying to help people live better lives. And that's part of where I get my purpose from, you know, and that mm-hmm. comes, flows out of some of my meaning too. And I can put a context into things. I take kind of a stoic view uh, as far as a lot of the, the, the dangerous stuff in the world. You know, if it happens, it happens. I'll deal with it. My dad was World War II military. So, you know, that whole generation, they dealt with a lot of trauma, a lot of things that are actually much worse than a lot of what we deal with today. I mean, we're always looking for something to have a cause or to deal with. I mean, they were saving the world for democracy and freedom, right? In fact, my first name comes from a buddy of my dad's that got killed in the war. So, you know, but they they just thought this is just something that's part of life. And you deal with things as they come up, you deal with them the best you can, life goes on. And fortunately, most of the bad stuff's not going to happen to you. So if you go with that, if you, if you go around wor- worrying about that plane that's going to follow the sky on you, you know, that's a well, it's probably not going to happen. If I fly, I'm probably going to be okay. If I drive to the supermarket, I'm probably going to be okay. I'll take reasonable precautions. You know, I, I, I look around, you know, when I'm driving, you know, I try to keep a defensive driving thing going on, but I'm not going to just get crazy with it, you know, because it, again, it's, it doesn't do me any good in my daily life. So that's, that's kind of a, a personal philosophy that you kind of develop over time. It took me a long time to get up the nerve to fly on an airplane. That was always yeah. one of my my biggest fears from the time I was a child. And and I'll tell a quick story. So when I was a kid and I would stay at my grandmother's house, she would put on in the VHS player, she would put on the movie La Bamba. 
And I don't know if you've yeah. seen it, but it was about Richie Valens and Buddy Holly and basically their planes crashing. So the movie right. opens and closes with a fiery plane crash. And when you're four years old, I really internalized that for a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, it took me until I was like 29 years old before I got on a plane. And, and now I can do it, but I don't love it, but I can do it. Yeah. And I wonder, how do you help people who have triggers like that from their childhood or have tr- childhood traumas that make it difficult for them to really get in touch with their anxiety in a more positive way. Yeah. Yeah. Siblings and childhood experiences provide therapists with a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are some, some modalities thing. Uh, one, one that I used was the EMDR, the eye movement, uh, desensitization, reprocessing. And if you have somebody who really knows how to use it, because again, like any technique like that, it's, you know, the skill of the person is, is involved. I found that very useful in helping to diffuse some of the emotional trigger that's going on. And then in addition, you have to come up with your coping self-statements, and then you just go out and you just do some practicing. You do some desensitization. I know the major airports, a lot of them actually have fear of flying programs that you can actually go on and sit on an airplane and do some relaxation response and you know, practice before you actually do the flight and stuff. Maybe talk a moment about how memories you know, and how emotions and memories are intertwined. Your brain is, it's an amazing organism that makes associations constantly, associations be good and bad. And also there's an awful lot of stuff that goes on at an unconscious level that you're totally not aware of. In fact, um, you're even sitting here, you're busy, part of your brain is monitoring what's going on with the computer. It's listening for things that might happen, you know, somebody coming into the house or this or that. It's got all these associations of your life that have been associated with both positive and negative stuff and even just walking down the street you know your body's not your brain's not only coordinating your body but it's looking out for dangerous objects for good things that might appear and all the while you know you're busy thinking about well gee i got this program coming up what am i going to say or you know what am i going to have for lunch you know things that are very trivial in the long haul but it's good that our brain can do all that other stuff at an automatic level and so as things occur uh your brain um puts an emotional tag on them. So in your case, you know, the the video of of the plane crash got a very strong negative emotional tag. You know, chocolate cake probably has a positive tag, things like that. And so when those objects come into view or, you know, your your sensory system picks up on it, then it'll immediately bring that emotion or that that memory or that that awareness at an unconscious level that there's danger there, right? And and a lot of times will then focus your attention to that thing. Uh, so that's part of the thing that some, things like EMDR seems to help to uh, quiet down spotting. There's some other techniques, hypnosis, things of that nature. They can deal with part of quieting that emotional response. But then you also have to do some practicing because experiential learning is essentially what you have to do. Uh, book learning is nice, but we are organic beings. We need to have experiential learning. So I can read everything there is to know about driving a car. But until I get behind the wheel and start driving and, oh my gosh, that didn't work. Oh, this feels good. The brain starts to make associations between movements and, you know, objects and things that this is good, this is bad. Now it can become unconscious and I can start listening to the radio or talking to the person next to me. And you can literally desensitize to anything. Everybody listening to this, probably when they got their first job, had a lot of anxiety, but then after a while, it's just no big deal. You get another job, there's anxiety, then you desensitize to all that stuff, and now it's okay. 
you look at what people get desensitized to like in a, in, in a war theater or in an operating room or things of that nature, we have that ability. It's just a matter of doing it in a systematic way. Like I had one lady, when I first started working with her, the goal was to get her out to the mailbox because she'd have panic attacks just getting outside the house. And so we worked with, you know, the tools for, you know, managing the physical aspects of anxiety, like breathing, relaxation, response, distraction, things of that nature. And then had her just start practicing, you know, and using the coping self-statements uh, to manage the fears that would come up automatically in her, in her brain. And now she goes all over the town. So she's doing great. And maybe a more specific example is I had one lady I, I worked with who had a fear of water and traced back to when she was little and her big brother used to tell her that there are piranhas in the pool and that they were going to eat her toes. So she better not put her toes in the water. You know, you get siblings making a lot of good work. Yeah. Right? <laughs> kids are dreadful, aren't they? So no, I, anyway, say that. I love kids. <laughs> but kind of analogous to, to, to what, what you had going on. And so, you know, she would get near water. And, and of course, the first thought was, oh my gosh, this is dangerous. I can't, I, I can't stand. I got to get away. And so we said, okay, let's manage that fear. Okay. So let's come up with a simple explanation for what's going on. I'm reacting to uh, an old fear of when my brothers used to tease me. There's never were piranhas in the water. I was always safe. It was just a childhood fear. And then again, we would distract after that point get her sitting next to the pool, you know, reading a book, get her sitting in the pool with her water, feet in the water. And eventually she got where she'd get in the water and it was okay again. So it's a desensitization process. Same thing you do with fear of snakes, elevators, you know, whatever, you know, it is. I think the caveat is that it does take some work. And so it needs to be something that is worthwhile for you to do if you're going to go through the desensitization process. If you're only going to fly on a plane once a year or once every five years or something like that, then it might be easier just to take a Xanax and, you know, handle it that way, as opposed to go through the more extensive desensitization. If you fly all the time, then certainly probably you want to do a more extensive desensitization. I had a flight attendant once who uh, uh, the plane hit a downdraft, and so she got thrown up at the uh, roof of the airplane and... Uh, you know, developed a major fear of flying after that. And uh, so we worked with that and she got back where she'd go back to work again. In fact, you know who has the number one fear of flying programs in the world? Who? Military. Oh, that does make sense. Because if you have a, a pilot that gets a flame out or something, then you want, and you've spent $100,000 training them, you want to get them back in that cockpit as soon as you can. Airlines have the next biggest one, Right. Because again, yeah. there's money involved. And so you want to desensitize your people and get them back to work as, as soon as you can. That's uh, so, so desensitization does work if you go through it in, in you know, a systematic way. That's really interesting. And I think that desensitization certainly worked for me with my fear of flying. The first one was not fun, but it, it felt better each time. And unfortunately, my, my daughter, she's five now. We took her on her first plane trip in last October and she was just thrilled she had a great oh, time yeah. relaxing yeah. had her headphones so i'm grateful that i have not been that catastrophizing mom that's passed it on to her yeah in fact that's what i used to tell my clients you know when they say well how can i keep my kids from doing this you know well you learn how to manage it yourself and then that will model to your kids right and, and, and i think you, you, the other point to make is that the goal is not to eliminate anxiety when you are desensitizing but to convince yourself i can manage it 
and it's not going to paralyze me. I'm not going to go crazy or pass out or, you know, it's just an uncomfortable feeling. And once you get the fact that it's just an uncomfortable feeling and it fades out as I quit paying attention to it, then that helps you with that whole desensitization process. Yeah, you said that earlier and that actually was, that was really interesting to me. Are you a spirited, spectacular woman with a message, method, or framework that would change lives if only more people knew of it? Are you ready to grow your audience, strengthen your authority, and attract more clients through publishing a book? If so, it's time to bring your book idea to life. As a book coach who specializes in working with passionate, purpose-driven women, I can help you successfully write and publish your first or next book. Through a customized blend of strategy, accountability, writing prompts, and sisterhood, I will guide you to clarify your book vision to attract the right readers, structure your book so that it sends your readers on an exciting heroine's journey that makes them take action when they finish reading, create an energizing writing routine even if you don't consider yourself a writer, maintain focus amidst distractions so that you get it done in half the time, query your book proposal to agents and publishers with authority, or self-publish your book with confidence, and make an impact with your book post-launch. Don't let your book stay trapped inside you any longer. Let's get your wisdom out into the world. Visit booksandalchemy.com coaching to learn more about my personalized book coaching services for women who are ready to elevate their reach and impact and get more clients doing it. This is your season. Let's show the world. So something that I had read before was that, we'll just say public speaking, that's a common fear for a lot of people that before public speaking, everybody feels that little tightening in their stomach. And some people perceive it as anxiety and some people perceive it as excitement. Exactly. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, it, it's it's true. Fear, fear of public speaking is interesting because usually it goes back to around junior high school. You know, junior high school kids can be terribly cruel. Brutal time, <laughs> a brutal time. Yeah. And uh, the people I've worked with, usually they got teased or something, or they were kind of a shy kid or kind of, you know, whatever. And so it's really that self-consciousness about what are people going to think? So some of the types of coping self-statements that I would have them do is, number one, most people, as an, you're in the adult world now, and most people really don't care about you. True. No, they're not even listening to the whatever you're I, saying. <laughs> I mean, you could totally screw up and they'll notice yeah. it. But then, you know, five seconds later, they're busy thinking about lunch or something else, right? Yeah. Going on. So you really don't matter. It's not like it's going to be in the newspaper the next day. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, is again, you need to have something to say if you're public speaking. I, I taught that a little bit and they had me, they stuck me in one of those classes for a while. I said, I've seen public speakers who, had the worst technique in the world, but what they had to say was so captivating. You ignored that, you know? So if you mm-hmm. have something that, that to give people that that's, that's important for them, that they want to hear, then technique is second. It's good to have it, you know, but, you know, that's, that's the most important thing. And then again, you know, you find uh, the old technique of finding one or two people in the room that have friendly faces and you talk to them and you ignore everybody else. But I think that thing that People aren't really going to notice your mistakes in the long run. They might notice it for five seconds or 20 seconds, but then it's gone. They're thinking about something else. You're just, you're not going to be in the newspaper the next day. I remember I had a public speaking fear when I was like in early college, but by the time I'd gotten to the end of college, something clicked and I don't know if it was even exposure for that, but I just realized nobody cared. (laughs) Nobody cared. So I was, it made it a lot easier to talk. 
well, that's 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 the benefit of getting older, is you really don't care mm-hmm. what people think about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, true, true. That much. That's some people it hit it hits early, and some people a little bit later. But it's comforting uh, in a way. Again, it's important. Again, that relationship thing to have at least a few people who do care, which is again mm-hmm. something that's in short supply for a lot of our younger generation nowadays, especially. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the. Uh, Fear of missing out is a whole new term that's come up with the internet age and all the social media. People have 500 Facebook friends, but they don't have a single person that they can be real with in their life. And so all they do is they immerse their head into all of these perfect lives, which really aren't perfect, but they appear perfect, you know, on the internet. And that that's the source of a lot of depression and anxiety too. Yeah, I have, I've noticed that. You see a lot more social anxiety nowadays than when I was growing up, I suppose. In fact, one of the things I would recommend with people is, uh, number one, quit watching the news. And if you, you it's okay to go to like a a news collection site on the internet. I do that in the morning. I'll spend 15 minutes or so and I'll go through the headlines. I'll read articles I want to read. And then I move on, you know, because again, if you're in this 24 hour cycle and you constantly have it on, that in itself is going to really increase your anxiety and depression or whatever else is going on because you're just immersing your head so much in all this crazy stuff. And the media's whole goal is to generate anxiety, right? Generate uh, emotion because then that sets you up to buy whatever they're selling on the commercial time. And they do a good job of it too. I don't they do. watch the yeah. news and I avoided the news for quite some time. Now I yep. get one of those newsletters in the morning that's just like, factual right. there's no right, right, right. sensationalizing kind of summarizing but, mm-hmm. but yeah. with there's so much as you said media trying to get you to have an emotional response so yeah. it's harder now to not have anxiety i would think well you know you do have an off and on knob so yeah <laughs> and, and you know e- even back before the internet when i was working with people i said well just turn it off you know in fact there was the interesting study uh, in europe which country it was i think it was germany but anyway, they had uh, people, they were like 18 to their mid-20s, and they had them just reduce their social media by an hour a day. And on all their measurements of happiness after a few weeks, they were doing better. In fact, that lasted for a long time, that effect, just spending less time doing it. And it's okay, social media, I mean, I keep tabs on my son through Facebook and you know things of that nature, and I, I have some, some that I have to do because of my work and stuff. But at the same time, it's you got to put some limits onto how much time you spend there. You do. That is one of the things I think I've done well with. So well, in fact, that I it's hard for me now to keep up with social media for my business because I'm so accustomed to not doing it. And I don't necessarily yeah. want to get back to that place because yeah. um, it wasn't a healthy spot for me. So I do want to ask you about your new book. So. Um. I want to make sure we are able to talk about that. Well, again, it's, it's why you feel the way you do. And I take people on a journey. I start with the the seven circuits, emotional circuits that neuroscience has identified that we share with our pets and other mammals. And then I use that to springboard into negative triggers and negative core response patterns that people have and wrap up with, again, the three things that make people happy. And uh, it's been a real... Real fun book to write. I've, I've been interested in emotions all my life. It's been something that's just fascinated me. And there's so much out there that is total nonsense about them. But it, it was a fun book to, to, to write. Can you tell me what those seven uh, circuits are? Sure. Uh, I mean, there's the ones that we're all familiar with, you know, anger and fear uh, over a threat. 
Um, and then, uh, of course, sex, you know, they call it lust, lust circuit that mm. generates and uh, during junior high. And uh, two that were kind of new to me that I hadn't read about before. Uh, one was something called seeking. In fact, let me back up. Neuroscience calls these affects. And an affect is something that causes you to want to take action. It drives the behavior. Okay. So the simplest affects are your sensory affects. So heat, cold, pressure. If I sit for a long time, the pressure makes me want to change. If I'm cold, I really want to get hot. Um, the next set of affects are what they call the homeostatic affects. That's just a fancy word for balance, things that keep balance in your body. So hunger and thirst being the two big ones, right? If you're thirsty, you really get motivated to drink something. Other things become less important. Same thing if you're really hungry. Um, and then what we normally call emotions are kind of the next set on top of that and they get intertwined of course with your uh, conscious mind your belief systems and your experiences so seeking is the uh, you see it in all babies uh, whether they're humans or puppies or kittens or whatever they want to explore the environment they go out there they're touching everything they're checking everything out it's the basis of our curiosity it's why when you go to a new situation one of the first things you do is you look around in fact with social anxiety one of the things uh, that people will do is you know if you if you walk into a room everybody checks you out right they and again that's that seeking circuit just wanting to know what's coming into my environment and it's, it's almost an unconscious urge to look around see what's what's there just to see if it's safe or is it dangerous and then another circuit that's interesting is the play circuit uh, the scientist named uh, Panksepp who started this, he was known as the rat tickler because that was one of the first things that he worked okay. with. And he found you could totally shut off the, the conscious part of the rat's brain and they'd still want to play. So it was a very deep neurological circus. And of course, that's how it, with social beings, that's how we learn limits. Uh, if you've ever been around a little kid, you know, they're playing and at some point they do too much. You know, they're poking the gorilla too much. And someone says, okay, stop. That's enough. I watch my three and a half year old granddaughter a couple of days a week. And that's the same. She wants to tickle her. She wants to do this. But at some point it gets, okay, that's, that's the limit. And we still have that desire to interact with play as an adult, unless it gets, you know, stomped or dampened as we're growing up. Because all, all these circuits vary from person to person and they can be exaggerated or quieted depending upon your early childhood experience. We actually have two fear circuits. One is danger, but the other one in children, we call it separation anxiety. The researchers mm -hmm. call it the panic cycle. And um, you take, and there's a corresponding caring circuit then. And so when the baby is distressed, the parent that gets triggered in the parent, and then they want to you know, comfort the baby. You see this like on a, oh, if you go to like Disneyland or someplace, a kid falls down and cries. Immediately all the kids are, Checking out, okay, we're, you know, the, you can see this caring or this uh, concerned look on their face as that circuit kicks in. And it's part of, again, what causes us to have love and to bond to people, right? Babies coming out of uh, Eastern Europe, some of the old orphan or orphanages there, they were not cared for other than just giving, you know, bottles and change. But if they would cry, nobody would pick them up. And so what they learned is it was useless to quit, quit crying. And when they were adopted, they had major problems with attachment, okay? And in fact, one of the interesting um, studies that was done is they had a, a baby with uh, their birth mother, and when they play a simple game, we're talking about a toddler, the oxytocin levels, which is part of what's in this uh, circuit, 
uh, go sky high. These babies, it would stay flat, which indicates there was something going on with the circuitry that had gotten you know, turned off because of that early childhood experience. So again, these circuits are not all universally the same. Again, childhood experiences and individual variation, just like some people are do math better than others. Some people are better at sports. Uh, you know, we have that normal variation in us. But those are the basic circuits, the seeking, the uh, play, lust, the separation anxiety or fear circuit, and the fear circuit with danger, anger, and caring. And so all of these circuits, how do they lead to our emotions? Well, the emotions are designed to help us get good stuff and avoid bad stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And as these associations get made in the brain, you know, they're, they're what the brain uses when something is good or bad in your environment to help to alert you to the fact that it's there and to give you the energy and motivation to do something else. One of the ways you can think of emotions, they are both, they generate energy in the body through the fight or flight mechanism, and they give you that desire to do something, you know, just like with the, the baby crying, you know, when that care circuit gets triggered, you know, you really want to go over and comfort that little kid, you know, again, unless that's been beat out of you. Uh, so, they're, they're drivers, again, providing energy and motivation. In fact, another way of looking at emotions is there are messages about needs that need to be taken care of. One of the problems that a lot of people will encounter is they're out of touch with some of their emotions. And so it, it will generalize into anxiety or depression. In fact, it's, it's interesting, going back to the, some of the panic disorder work I, I did, I'd have somebody come in maybe six months later and say, well, you know, I had a panic attack. I don't understand why that happened. So I say, okay, let's go through the checklist. Okay, how is your how's your significant other doing? How's your kids doing? How's work going? Uh, your friendships, uh, major things in life. And they would always say, well, you know, this happened, but it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> well, you know, I was cleaning out my old storage compartment with my ex, you know, uh, my, with my ex who was abusive. And we were, that was the last time we were going to get together. You know, okay, there's a message there that you're just not addressing. And mm. so one of the things, especially with people who are anxiety prone, is you need to keep short accounts. When things come up in life, you need to decide how you're going to deal with it. If you don't, that need will keep pressing at an unconscious level and generate a lot of times anxiety. So just recognizing that it's it's a message. It's like the little light bulb on your dashboard of your car that says a battery needs to be taken care of or this or that. Emotions are messages that you have something you need to address in life. A lot of times it's relationship, although it doesn't have to be. This is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And as somebody with anxiety and I work to try to control it mindfully and just like manage it and sometimes yeah. more successfully than others, it's it's given me a lot to think about. So thank you. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and especially, you know, understanding that it's usually just a message about something, oftentimes something you don't want to deal with. <laughs> yeah. Almost always. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so recognizing, okay, I got to deal with that again, you know, uh, and, and once you get comfortable with that aspect of it, it gets a lot easier to manage, you know, and you mm -hmm. become clearer in life because that's part of life anyways, is I, I always say, you know, life is a series of choices, you know, and you got to decide what choice you're going to make to minimize the bad stuff and maximize the good stuff. And sometimes the choices aren't good, but still, you know, you got to face it and, and deal with it. Well, yeah. One of the interesting things that ha people often do is they get into what we call circular why questioning. I don't understand why. How could that happen? Why would it go on? 
you see this on the news all the time with disasters and stuff. You know, there's an accident. People say, I don't know how this could happen. Well, it's an accident. Accidents happen, right? Uh, and what's going on is usually somewhere in your belief system is a belief about the way things should or must be. Reality has violated that. And now instead of saying, well, I wish things were this way, but they're not, what am I going to do about it? You get into this, I don't understand. How could that happen? My friend was so unfair. How could my friend be unfair? Friends aren't supposed to do that. And then I would say, well, why do you think that might have happened? Well, they were having a bad day or this or that. You know, maybe they were a jerk. You know, they'll come up with very logical explanations and then go right back into, I don't understand. How could they do that? It's, uh, and, and so that's, that's something when you catch yourself doing that, ask yourself, how should it have happened? And you, you get into that basic rule that you have. I, I wanted it to go this way. It didn't go that way. So what am I going to do about it? Ah. And then you mentioned also the three things that make people happy. And it was purpose. Well, you know. well the, the big one, the big one is relationship. Mm -hmm. Having two or three people in your life that you can be transparent with, you can talk to about good things and bad things. They're not going to stab you in the back or laugh at you. And that you just have a, you know, you have a good relationship with. It used to be people had lots of rich relationships in their life. You know, you, you grew up in a village, an extended family, the people on your block, you didn't move around all the time like we do nowadays. So you had people when things are going on, you go and you could talk to them about it. And nowadays, uh, it's amazing how many people can go through their entire day and not have a single meaningful contact with another human being. You know, they got their earbuds in, they're into their computer, or their garage door open mine. Like my that just broke this morning, <laughs> all that type of stuff. Uh, and and that's really one of the things that's important. That, that's one of the reasons why when you go to like uh, developing countries, a lot of times people living in very difficult circumstances, but still, you know, reasonably at peace on a day-to-day -day level. And one of the things that helps that is that they have those rich relationships and they have a purpose, whether it's just simply caring for their family or this or that. And they usually have some kind of an existential, that one of those meaning, something that helps to put that stuff in context for them. Uh, and again, we tend to be very impoverished in, in our Western culture, especially here in the U.S. Uh, and partly because we spend so much time pursuing uh, entertainment. Uh, you know, people spend hours on TV. Uh, and then when they're not on TV or radio, they're busy you know earning a living or you know doing other stuff and so they never have time to sit down and really just enjoy another person think about you know who they are where they're going in life you know some of those deeper things that, that we used to have a lot of time for but we don't have the time nowadays mm -hmm. do you think it's important for people to feel boredom sometimes when my kids would say i'm bored i'd always say oh wonderful boredom Boredom will spawn all kinds of creativity. So go oh. somewhere else. Go somewhere else to be bored. Well, <laughs> or, that's or what we're here I, for is creativity. Or, or I can give you some work to do. <laughs> oh, my dad would say that too. <laughs> Better well, not be and, bored and, or you're going to get chores. <laughs> and, and it works. But but again, you know, you, you just go back 20 years and people had a lot more free time, a lot of time without, you know, noise coming in from a TV or a radio or someplace. Uh, we just, we're so inundated nowadays we don't have time to just quiet and think about stuff and to feel and to and to just kind of process stuff mm -hmm. uh, because it's just one thing after another coming into the old brain that's really interesting 
Let me ask you another question here, a slightly different one. On this podcast, we love to work with the seasons and be more aligned with the seasons so that we can embrace the creativity that's available to us with each season. So tell me something that you really love about autumn. Oh, autumn is great. (laughs) Uh, Just all the activity. Yeah, it's you're coming back in off of summer. And so it's a time where you start meeting people maybe that you haven't met for a while. Uh, my small group will be that I've, I've got a small group I've been meeting with for 20 years and uh, we'll be starting up again in September. So that'll be fun. Uh, you know, church activities start kicking up again, you know, uh, just, just a lot, lot, a lot of nice things going on in fall. I like the weather. I like spring and fall because of the weather. Don't like it when it's really hot. Don't like it when it's really cold, you know, so the temperature's fun. Great season. I think everybody's favorite season is fall. I've got this one friend whose favorite season is winter, but she's kind of a wild card. Yeah. Well, I get a lot done in work winter. That's a good time for writing. <laughs> that is true. That is true. There's no extra yeah. summer is a terrible time, but winter is a little bit better. Yeah. 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 yeah California summer is great for all the fruit and stuff. So oh yeah. Get, get all the vegetables coming. I got my tomatoes. I can have my tomato sandwich and everything. So oh a tomato sandwich. That's very southern. Yeah. Yeah. So if you had one tip from your book that you would love to leave listeners with, what would that one tip be? Wow. Uh, I guess that that there's there's no matter what's going on in your life, there are things you can do to make it better. Uh, and so if, if you don't, either through a book or through going to talk to somebody, go find somebody or uh, some kind of resource uh, to, to address whatever, whatever it is that you're, you're dealing with in life. Don't, don't continue to struggle. Get some help. Great advice. So where could everybody find you online and where can we find your book? Well, everything is at whyemotions.com. That's my website. Uh, the book's on Amazon and it's paperback, ebook, uh, and also audio. So it's easy to find. Since my name is hard to remember, whyemotions.com is a lot easier. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) that's W-H-Y, W-H-Y emotions.com. And the book is called Why You Feel the Way You Do. Yes. By Renaud Purifoy. It's been really lovely speaking to you today, Renaud. I know that I've certainly learned a lot. I'm going to pick up this book because I absolutely need it. And I think that I am ready for my season of being able to manage my anxiety better than I'm doing. You know, and and one of the things that's I had a conference that I was speaking at and a group, a self-help group that was using my first book came and they all had these buttons and it said, so I'm anxious. (laughs) And I thought that was so wonderful. You know, they would, they would, they were saying, you know, I got a presentation tomorrow. Probably not going to sleep tonight, but I'll sleep good the next night. You know, that whole attitude that this is just who I am. You know, again, a lot of times people with anxiety disorders understand that that's your best quality. It's the thing about mm-hmm. you that your kids, your you know, your mate, your friends like, because you're very empathetic. You tune in well to people. You're a great listener. Uh, it's just you get overloaded easily, you know, and that's all it is. I appreciate you reframing that. That way it makes yeah. me feel a ton better about well, it. Well, 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 it is. And, and, and understanding that that you are abnormal because most people in the world aren't that way. I yeah, think I've always the- known I was abnormal, though. <laughs> but that's but that's the other thing. But but again, you're a wonderful gift to the world. You know, uh, I mean, I have a lot of that traits in myself, which is why I enjoyed working with it so much. Uh, but the sensitivity is, is a wonderful gift to other people. They they yeah. love it. Yeah, and somebody's got to be the anxious person, otherwise we 
wouldn't have like OSHA or things like that. Yeah. Somebody's got to be the warrior. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been really lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Dream Season. I've got just one thing to ask of you. Please, please, please leave a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. All you need to do is select a star rating, and I hope it's five stars, but please be honest, and tap, type, or even voice to text one or two sentences about your experience listening, something you learned, or something you loved. This is the single most important thing you can do to help this podcast succeed. And as a thank you to anyone who leaves a review today, I will send you a free audio guided visualization for each season, so you can find your creativity no matter the season. Just email a screenshot of your review to hello at booksandalchemy.com and I'll send you the visualization. Thank you again for listening and remember, no matter the season, remember to dream.